0: As Jesus was teaching his, uh, his followers, he asked them a question one day. He said, who do, you, who do people say that I am? People gave a, his followers gave lots of various answers and responses to what the, the culture around them was saying about the, the conclusions that they had come to as far as who Jesus was. And then Jesus turned the question on them and he said, but who do you Say that I am? A very, very important question as Jesus is trying to to get his disciples to consider and understand and come to not just any conclusion, but the right conclusion to who he is. In fact, that question, who do you say Jesus is, is the most important question you could ask. Or be asked in your life. Because from the Bible's perspective, if you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong. So, what if you were to be asked that question this morning? Who do you say that Jesus is? That whatever answer it is that you, you have, whatever conclusion that you've come to, how did you come to that conclusion? How do you evaluate whether the the conclusions, the assumptions, the beliefs that you have about Jesus are correct or right? Are they true just because you believe them to be true? Are they rooted in something else? How do we go about evaluating rightly and truly who Jesus is? We, over these four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, we've been looking in an account of Jesus' life and teachings given by a, a man named Matthew. This is actually one of Jesus' authorized uh, explainers of his life. Uh, the one that we would look to, to to find out how do we rightly interpret and understand and respond to who Jesus is. Well, we're going to, we've already looked at one, but we're going to be looking at four places in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and teaching, uh, where he's talking about Jesus' birth, His infancy, His early years, and directly showing us how we understand who Jesus is based on the Old Testament Scriptures and how Jesus is a a fulfillment of all the promises that God had given His people and are coming to realization in Him. Uh, This morning we are in chapter 2 of uh, this book uh, that Matthew has written. We're looking at verses 1 through 12 together this morning. If you're in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 807. We're going to encounter in our passage this morning uh, some guys who have come to some conclusions about the identity of Jesus. What we want to look at is see how does... Matthew direct us, and how do we evaluate rightly the conclusions we have and truly come to a right understanding of the identity of Jesus? So if you would, follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word um, as we go from verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your revelation of Yourself to us. We thank You for Your sovereign preserving of that revelation, that we can have an accurate record of who You are and what You've done and how You've spoken to us and revealed Yourself to us. We pray this morning You would continue Your activity and Your work, that, Holy Spirit, You would give us eyes to see, and hearts to believe truly who Jesus is. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I forgot to do this last week, and I know Greta will be disappointed if I don't. But kids, if you want to draw a picture this morning, we can replace some of our old ones over there on the, on the, the picture line. Um, Why don't you draw a picture of the, the scene that we have here, of these wise men, and just you choose what portion of their journey you want to record. Maybe you want to do as they're setting out, then when they're before Herod, and then when they're before Jesus and his family, but draw me a picture of these uh, these wise men and they're coming and pursuing and coming to find Jesus. So as we look here in this passage, we see these, these wise men. They've, they've already come to some sort of conclusion. They have some sort of idea about this One who has been born. They're coming and seeking and searching for Him. Notice what it says there in, uh, in verse uh, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is He who has been born King of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Uh, well, we're going to find out that this, this king that they're searching for at the end of the passage, we find out that it's Jesus. They have come to some conclusion that Jesus is, in their words, the king of the Jews, which is a very startling conclusion. Because notice their, their assumptions. Their beliefs that they see. It's, he, they don't say, here's one who has been born who will be the king. No, they say, he, where's the one who has been born? The one as soon as he came into, uh, out of his mother was there. He was the king. That's in stark contrast and opposition to the one who's on the throne right now. The conclusion that they have is this one who has been born is the king. That means whoever is on the throne presently is not the king. And whoever put that one on the throne was wrong and did not have the authority and was not right. There's great claims, great considerations that these wise men have come to. Who, who are these, these wise men? uh uh, sometimes maybe you've heard it. Uh, they're called Magi, which is another word that's used to describe and talk about who they were. They came from the east, probably Persia or Babylon, that kind of region of the the world. They were uh, they were wise men. They were uh, astrologers, astronomers, advisors to uh, to kings. Uh, there's a long history of their use and their wisdom being sought out in uh, those nations and lands to the east. In fact, we, uh, we actually see that there was a, a history in a period of time where the Jews had great influence among the Magi, among these wise men from the east. If you recall, when, uh, when Judah was overthrown by Babylon, Babylon came and took the, 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 the smartest and the best of the youth, brought them to Babylon to train them so that they could uh, contribute to the life of Babylon. And four guys that rose to prominence among that group were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not only did Daniel rise up to be one of the chief magi in Babylon, when Babylon was taken over by the Persians, he also rose up in prominence there. And at, at this time, there would have still been a Jewish uh, um, community in that part of the world. Did they hear anything from, uh, from Daniel? Daniel? Uh, that has been passed on from Magi to Magi, that had them considering and wondering when would this king from the Jews be born? We don't know. But what we do know is that there's something about their observations of the celestial bodies and looking at the sky, of their astronomy, of their astrology, that leads them to this uh, conclusion that the king of the Jews has been born and they come to seek out and find him. Now, is there any validity to their belief that he's king of the Jews? Just because they believe it and they've come to this conclusion and said, oh, well, this star represents that or whatever conclusion, however they determine that to come. Does that make it true just because they believed it to be so? I mean, what happens if they show up and Everybody's like, what are you talking about? There's no king that's been born. We never even heard that there was supposed to be one to be born. How do you evaluate whether these guys who roll up, who knows how many of them were? Sometimes we say there's three, but that's only just come about because they gave three gifts. It doesn't tell us how many they were. They could have come with some large entourage, especially if they're carrying expensive gifts like they brought from a long way away. It's not just three guys rolling around. You want to protect yourself. So this whole group comes. They travel and go at great lengths to come and find this one that they say is king of the Jews. That they roll up into the the, the palace of the present king, and they might as well have said to him, where's the real king? We're here to find him. What's the basis how do we evaluate whether what they are believing what they are holding to is right just because they have a a feeling in their gut or see what they think is a sign does that make it true what about you your your conclusions that you've come to about jesus is he a a man of legend man of myth Uh, is he just a a wise teacher from the past Uh, A political, a religious revolutionary and transformer? How have you come to those conclusions? And how do you evaluate whether they are right or not? Others of us here may may believe that Jesus is is actually what He claimed to be. God who has taken on flesh, who has entered into our world. Not not one way among many to God, but the only way to God. How did you come to those conclusions? conclusions? How do you evaluate whether they are correct or not? Well, notice as Matthew is giving us his account here of life, of Jesus' life and teachings, he is telling us that if we really want to understand rightly who Jesus is and respond correctly to who he is, then we need to look and see what is the Old Testament? What do the scriptures tell us about Jesus? That's how we evaluate and understand rightly who he is. We've seen him doing that already, but notice here where Matthew points us in his telling of what has happened here. Look in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born and where did they take him? Well, notice in verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Matthew is saying, Do you really want to know who Jesus is? Then go to the standard of truth, go to the authority that can rightly evaluate it, go to the scriptures. Go to the Word of God. We've been having a lively debate in our house for the past few months over something that is, needs to be settled. It's a very important uh, and much highly debated issue in our culture today. And that is this is the official name Duncan or Duncan Donuts? I say it's Dunkin' Donuts. My kids, however, say no. It's Dunkin'. It's only Dunkin'. And I try to point them to reasons why I believe that it's Dunkin' Donuts. They say, "Look at the sign." I say, "Well, look at the other sign that's on the one across from Food Lion. And what does it say?" Well, it says Dunkin' Donuts on the side. And they're like, "It's not called Dunkin' Donuts anymore. It's just Dunkin', Daddy. Get up with the times." I'm like, "Well, let's go and find out." And so what do we do? Well. Let's go to the Internet. Let's look it up. So I go to the website. Guess what it is? Mark in my column, (laughs) www.duncandonuts.com. But then they say, well, why does it say on this sign right here on the ground in front of the, the store, Daddy? Why does it say Duncan? I'm like, I don't know. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. We can't just say, well, you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. What is right? What is it officially called? So what do we do? We find out, what does the CEO say? Because whatever the CEO says, that's what we go about. Because why? He's the one in authority. He's the one who has made decisions. He is the one who decides what it's called and what it's not. What is the true identity of this place that for us so long has been known as Dunkin' Donuts? Well, Come to find out, I was wrong. Going all the way back to 2018, they decided to change the name, and the CEO says we have officially changed the name and are rebranding it as Dunkin', but we will continue to serve donuts. (laughs) They said they wanted to be known more for their coffee drinks uh, and be more healthy. So we have a new health food store in town. It's known as Dunkin'. But that leads us back to the consideration before us, right? We couldn't just say, well, I believe this. I must evaluate whether the conclusions I have come to are actually right. Because there's nothing, nothing will change in my life if I continue to go on and calling this place Dunkin' Donuts. But if you get Jesus wrong, from the Scripture's point of view, eternity eternity hangs in the balance. Therefore, we must figure out who is He really? And where do we go? We go to the Scriptures. The Word of God. Now, we've talked about this last week of the, the conclusions. Of the the worldview in which the scriptures operate, is there is one living and true God, and He is a personal absolute. He is one with absolute power and authority, knowledge in the world, but also He's personal. We can relate to Him, we can know Him, we can interact with Him, and He is active in our world. And the scriptures tell us that we are created in His image. The way that we live and, and act reflects something about His character. And the way that we also as personal beings relate and interact with other people is that when we want to communicate and reveal ourselves to other people, we speak. We speak with words. We write with words. We put them down into formats so that we can pass them on and communicate and reveal ourselves to other people. So if there is a personal absolute God then it would make sense if he desires to reveal himself that he would do so in a way that we can understand. That he would do so through speaking. That he would do so through writing. So that that word could be preserved and passed on from generation to generation to generation. So that he could rightly be understood, related to in our world. And in fact, that is what we find in the scriptures. Now some of you may be here and and question whether they're A God exists, or if the scriptures are accurate and real. I would again continue to encourage you to evaluate these things, to ask those questions. They are important questions, but don't just let it be left on, well, I just don't believe there's a God. Let's look at it, let's investigate it. Or if you just want to dismiss and say the scriptures aren't reliable, they've been changed, they've been altered, they've been made up by men. Have you come to those conclusions? Have you looked at them? Have you evaluated them based on the the claims of Scripture, the existence of our God? Let's look at those things together. Here, uh, we would see and recognize that our sovereign and good God has preserved for us an accurate record and account of His work and His activity in the world. He's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. And there we can find right evaluation of Who Jesus is and who our God is. And here we see that one of those ways that God spoke, revealed, communicated Himself was through prophets. Not just a guy who's coming up with a dream or some some story that he's concocted over the course of several years. No, what we see in the scripture is one unfolding story of the revelation and redemption of our God that took place over thousands of years. Communicated to us from a variety of human authors, but from one source, our God. And if we want to evaluate rightly who Jesus is, we must go to the Scriptures. And just as here they consulted the Scriptures to find out, we must do the same thing. Matthew here is trying to direct our attention and to say, Do you want to know who Jesus is? You must go to the Word of God. And Matthew is in the right place to be, able to be the one who tells us to do that. Because he was appointed by Jesus as the authorized spokesperson, the evaluator, the, one of the revealers of Christ's identity to us. And notice, he directs us to the Scriptures. It's this authorized, authoritative communication of the... the uh, the personality and the revelation of Christ that we want to go to to understand and evaluate who we are and who Jesus is. And notice, uh, as the, the, uh, the Magi make their way, they're told, hey, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. They go and seek out and they find that their conclusions that they had come to based on what God was doing in the celestial world and then as they come to Bethlehem, they then find that just what they were told, that the scriptures foretold, confirmed and evaluated that the one that they were looking for was in fact this king of the Jews, and their response to him was one of worship, of praise and honor. So here the their conclusion what they've come to is the fact that this Jesus who is born, this baby who's in Bethlehem, is the king of the Jews. Well, what kind of king is he? We've already talked about before, it, there's something about him being king that is a threat to Herod's place as being king, and even ultimately, Rome being the rulers of the region at this time. So look at it and see. They're, they're describing him not just as, as some king of some regional area, but notice what they say in verse 4. When they're asked about where is this king going to be born, when these uh, wise men from the east come, as the, the religious leaders of the day that Herod consults, notice what they call him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You see, this king wasn't just one more line and some uh, born from royalty, but there's a certain king that they've been anticipating, a certain king they're called the Christ, who was one who would be the fulfillment of all the promises that God had given in the Old Testament, of one who would come and bring deliverance, who would bring peace, who would bring salvation fulfilling all that God had given to his people. And they're saying that this one was born in Bethlehem. What's the significance of that? What, how, what do we understand about this king that the, that the wise men are claiming that Jesus is and that Matthew is telling us is fulfillment of what Micah spoke about? Well, let's look and see what Micah was originally saying. That's the prophet that's referenced here. So if you want to flip over to Micah, this is a book in the Old Testament. Again, God didn't just speak to men revealing himself to them. He has them write down because he wants this message preserved and passed down so that subsequent generations can know rightly who he is. Micah is writing around the same time period uh, as the guy that we looked at last week, Isaiah. He also is writing to the southern kingdom uh, or Judah at uh, at that point, remember, due to David's son Solomon's rebellion, God's people were split into two, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And the context of Micah's writing is one of great rebellion and unfaithfulness of God's people. In fact, if you read over Micah's uh, uh, book here uh, and the, the message that God gives him to communicate to the people, it's as if his people, God's people are on trial. And the one who is bringing the indictments against His people is God Himself. And He is telling them that they have been unfaithful to His covenant and they have been living uh, in rebellion against Him. Um, And we we see that God is communicating and, and, and sharing to His people that judgment and destruction is coming to them because of their rebellion. Notice in chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Zion's just another word that's used for Jerusalem and the, the mountain there where the, the temple was built. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So God is telling through the prophet Micah years before this would happen that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed due to their rebellion and their rejection of God. In fact, later in chapter 4, Micah tells exactly who it is that's going to do this. In chapter 4, verse 10, uh, he says, Rithe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. They're going to suffer and be sent into exile in Babylon for a time. Uh, And in the context as well, what happens, he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. He's saying God's people in Judah and in Jerusalem specifically are going to be laid siege against by an enemy, and the king ultimately is going to be overthrown. The rod will strike him on his cheek. He will be defeated. The Davidic ruler will no longer rule and reign in Jerusalem. And in fact, all this transpires just as Micah said it would. In fact, once Babylon comes on the scene, there is no Davidic ruler on the throne anymore. He's been cast down due to their rebellion and rejection. Herod, the one who's on the throne now, he's not from the line of David. Herod is actually one who's, who's descended from, uh, from the, the people called Edom, which actually descends from Esau. He was put on the throne, not because he has any sort of connection to David, because he had connections in the Roman Empire. And, the, and Rome set him over Judah at this time that, uh, uh, that Matthew is, uh, is telling us about when Jesus was born. But notice, in the midst of God's promising that there is going to be punishment for God's People's unfaithfulness and their rebellion, God gives them a promise that a deliverer, that a ruler will come. That's the context when this Bethlehem promise comes. Look in verse 2 of chapter 5 of Micah. This is saying, just follows right after he's talking about the judge or the king of Israel has been struck on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So uh, notice what God is saying. He's going to raise up a new ruler, a new king who's going to come from Bethlehem. Notice how significant that is. You would think if the the king was going to be raised up, he would come from the town that the king lives in, where the palace is, in Jerusalem. But God's saying, no, this king that I raise up will come from Bethlehem, a small, little, nothing, podunk town, nowhere near, this, not, nowhere near the size or importance of this royal city. And why is it going to be that I'm going to need to raise up this new ruler from not the royal city? It's because of my rejection of these kings for their rebellion and me putting them down. In fact, at the time he comes in verse 3, it tells us, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Uh, There, it's either describing the time when the woman who gives birth to this king gives birth to him, or just as we saw in chapter 4, it's talking about, Micah has been describing the suffering of God's people as being like a woman in labor. But either way, we see that He will give them up. They will be suffering. They will be under the control and domination of a foreign power. But God has said He is keeping His promises. Notice what He says. The reason this king is coming at the end of verse 2 is, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. God has said, I am keeping the promise that I gave. Do you remember the promise that God gave to David? We saw it. Uh, last year when we were going through 2 Samuel, and ch- 2 Samuel chapter 17, where God promised David uh, that there would be one who would come from him, who would rule and reign on the throne forever. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. But right now, there is no Davidic heir on the throne. Has God abandoned and, fulfill, and not gonna fulfill his promises? No, God is keeping his promises because he also promised David, if, this, if any of the sons of you rebel and reject against me, I will discipline them. And God is doing that. But we see he's keeping his promises, keeping his promises to bring one. See, there's, been, there's a, 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 another time where God's, the king over God's people was unfaithful. And God, in, in, in judgment and in discipline, disciplined that king and went and set another king on the throne. We also saw that in First and 2 Samuel. Do you remember? Saul was unfaithful king of God's people. And where did God go to find the king for himself? Because notice, that's even the language Micah uses here. From you shall come forth for me, a king for God. And God went and found the king for him. And where did he find him? He found him in Bethlehem. He found this new ruler, the king that God chose, the one who would deliver and save his people, was found in Bethlehem. You see, what Micah is saying is that there will come a time where due to the rejection and the rebellion of God's people, God will raise up another king for himself, keeping these old promises, the promises that he gave to David, the promise that he gave to Moses, the promise that he gave to Jacob, the promise that he gave to Abraham, the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve, to raise up this one who wouldn't just be a regional king, but notice as it goes on how it describes him. And verse four, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God, and they shall dwell secure for he shall be great at the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Notice this in the midst of their rebellion, God is still promising to work and redeem and renew. He says, I'm going to send one that's going to deliver you from the oppression you're experiencing. I'm going to send one who will be king when there's a time when there is no Davidic king on the throne and he will bring peace, but not just peace to you. His fame will extend to the ends of the earth. The nations will know about this one who's born in Podunk, Bethlehem. In fact, look over in verse one of chapter four. Listen to how uh, the, the context of what is going on when this this time of deliverance and renewal comes. And it shall come to pass in the latter days, this meaning is when this deliverer finally comes, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the highest of the mountains. This is falling on. Remember what he just said. He's going to knock down Jerusalem, knock down Mount Zion, but he will rebuild it. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say come let us go to the mountain of yahweh to the house of the god of jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of zion shall go forth the law and the word of yahweh from jerusalem he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation Neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and every under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. Notice what he's saying is gonna happen. That when this king comes, the nations are going to want to submit to the God of Israel. Nations are gonna to want to come and submit themselves to the king and the ruler of God's people in Jerusalem. Notice what we're seeing here when Jesus comes on the scene. Who's king? Not a Davidic heir. Who rules? Rome. God's people are under subjection. But when news comes that one has been born in Bethlehem, who is it that is flocking to Jerusalem to find and say, where is this king? Who is coming to Jerusalem to worship and to submit themselves? to the Jewish king. It's guys from the nations. It's these foreigners from far away fulfilling just what Micah said would happen. These guys who come from the land of Persia and Babylon, the enemies, the oppressors, the dominators of the people of God, it's members of these nations that are now coming. They seek out. The baby born in Bethlehem. And what do they do when they come into His presence? They bow before Him. They worship Him. They give Him honor and their possessions because they're recognizing Him not just as just being King of the Jews, but being the King. Because the King of the Jews rules on God's throne. And when he sends this one born in Bethlehem, he is the one that rightfully rules over the nations and to whom all owe their allegiance and their honor. And who gets it? Who understands it? Who comes and kneels before this king? It's the foreign magi. You see, this the... The next thing that we the last thing that we see Matthew's getting at here, it's not just that you rightly evaluate the conclusions you've come to about who Jesus is, but how do you respond in light of what you see? And what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus is the true King over all. God has placed him on his throne. He's keeping his promises to being a redeemer and who will bring peace. That, that term for peace is not just military peace, defeating and conquering political enemies, but it ultimately points to peace with God, because the biggest problem for the Jews at this point wasn't Rome. The biggest problem for the Jews when Micah was writing to them was not Babylon. What was the whole reason they were going into exile? Their sin. And God promised to send one who would do something about their sin. And that is who this King Jesus is. We saw that last week. He's God who, is taking on, who has taken on flesh. And why did He do that? To enter into our world so that He could die. The King took on flesh to bring us peace with God and that could only take place if the perfect one died in our place the scriptures are clear and continue to proclaim over and over that jesus is the one way to find peace with god how then do we respond to who he is let's look just quickly at three different responses in this passage the first notice look at herod the revelation from the word of god that the king of the jews has been born what is herod's reaction it's antagonism. It's rebellion. It's a desire to destroy. We'll actually look at this next week. But Herod told the disciples he wanted or told the Magi he wanted to worship this king, but we find out later he wants to kill him and slaughter him. Why? Because Herod realizes that if Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, that it means I'm not in control. It means Jesus rules and reigns and I must submit to him, but I don't want that. And so, one response is to hear that Jesus is the one true king, he's the ruler, and that his birth in Bethlehem confirms that. One response would be to continue to rebel, to continue to commit treason, to do whatever you can to reject Jesus. Because notice what the scriptures are saying you don't rule, Jesus. Rules and reigns. But notice there's another group of people here the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people at the time. These are guys who knew their Bible. Herod didn't know his Bible. He had to call them to come in and tell me, where's this king supposed to be born? Notice they know immediately. They know immediately he's supposed to be coming from Bethlehem. And then they cite the passage to Herod, they know the scriptures. But notice their response. Bells should have been going off for them. We're under oppression. A Davidic ruler isn't on the throne. Foreigners have come to our nation and they're looking for the king of the Jews who has been born. And this is fulfillment, they say, of Micah's prophecy. Their response should have been, God's keeping His word. God has fulfilled His promises that have been kept and been going out to His people from ancient ancient days, ancient times. Let's go. Let's go find Him. Announce to all of Jerusalem that our God has kept His covenant promises and the King is here. Let us go and worship Him. But what do they do? Nothing. They do nothing. Their response is one of apathy. Apathy. They're content with their religion. They're content with their Bible knowledge. They're content to worship and relate to God how they are, but have nothing to do with Jesus. Look at the last group, though. It's the Magi. These guys who, at first, we might would dismiss them. Of all, they would be the least likely to come and worship and bow down before this baby who... Couldn't even find a a proper place to be born. They go expecting to find the king of the Jews in the palace. But he's found in a small little town outside. And they go and they find this king and they bow down and they worship. But notice again how Matthew describes their reaction when they see the star and find out where he's going to be. Look in verse 10. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They went there, they fell down, and they worshiped. They honored Him as their King. You see, the Scriptures are telling us and proclaiming and showing us. Matthew is trying to point out for us who Jesus is. And he leads us and leaves us with this question. Not just who do you say Jesus is. Matthew, at this point, isn't concerned with what you think. He's telling you this is who Jesus is. And this is Matthew's question. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? Are you going to rebel against him like Herod? Are you going to just dismiss it? And continue on with life as normal, like the religious leaders at the time, content with your religious practice and how you think you're relating to God? Or will you rejoice with exceeding great joy, bow down before Jesus of Nazareth as the one true King and only Savior of sinners and call out to Him for deliverance and salvation and mercy? Where are you this morning? We've already asked the question, what are your considerations, your conclusions about Jesus? But this is a question. After seeing what the Bible proclaims and what Matthew is saying and what God is saying, how will you respond? What will you do with this knowledge? Here, the good news that God proclaims, peace is available. Salvation is available And God has come to save and redeem us in Christ. Hear the good news. My prayer for you would be that you would respond with joy, exceedingly great joy, and bow down before Christ, our only King, our only Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the good news and the hope of the gospel. We thank you that you have enter into our world. You've come into a place of suffering and shame and heartache and sin. We thank you that you came to redeem and to save us, that although we rejected you, you did not reject your promises. We pray now this morning that you would continue to show us rightly who you are, that we would Believe and hope and submit and trust in Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.